We're trying to conduct a serious scientific investigation. Science, logic, reason. Do you have any hard data? Now, that's what I call science. That's what I call science is proudly recorded in Tasmania at Edge Radio. We would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the land on which we are gathering to record this episode. We recognise the ongoing contributions that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples are making to the sciences. You are listening to That's What I Call Science, the weekly radio show and podcast that's brought to you from Tasmania and it focuses on shining a light on interesting research or researchers from Tasmania and the work that they're doing. So my name is Neve Chapman. I'm the weekly host of this show and the founding director. So the show started in February 2019 and I've actually just submitted my PhD. So I'm really excited. I moved to Tasmania three and a half years as this bright eyed and bushy tailed young researcher and um, a lot's happened in three and a half years. So today we thought that we would have a little bit of a moment to reflect with my primary supervisor, Professor James Sharman. So it's a little bit strange for me today because I'm actually part of the focus of our episode, which is not the norm. So bear with me, listeners, because this might be a bit strange. Essentially, we're going to talk a little bit about what my project was. So hi, Jim, first, or James. G'day, and and really nice to see that you're still bright-eyed and (laughs) bushy-tailed, even after three and a half years of hard slog on your PhD. And congratulations for submitting it. Thank you. Yes, it was a big milestone. I'm very relieved since. I'm very happy that it got over the line and was submitted. But I suppose we should probably start with an overview of like the main project for my PhD, which is something that's been, uh, I suppose, a, a pipeline project for you for many, many years before I came. I feel like it's, you know, my pride and joy. I only worked on it for three and a half years, whereas you've been working on it for what, probably about six or seven? About that, yeah. Wow. So essentially the wonderful idea that I got to work on is embedding better blood pressure measurement into clinical practice. So the idea is that cardiovascular disease is the number one cause of death and disability in the world and Australia. And it's actually largely preventable, particularly for if we intervene for those who are around 40, 45, 50. And we can look at all of their risk factors to say, oh, you're probably most likely to benefit from treatment because you are at higher risk of having a heart attack or a stroke. James's wonderful idea and the investigators involved in this study was to implant a, a service that can identify those who are most at risk when they go to have their cholesterol measured at pathology services, because that's something that's done routinely in clinical practice. It has established ways that we can give that information to the doctor who can make the treatment decisions based on it. And patients are already there. They're usually waiting anyway, and it wouldn't take long to get this really valuable extra information. So for the last three and a half years, I've been essentially developing apps and working with all of our industry partners to test that in real life to see if it worked. And it did, which was really exciting. Jim, what do you think are some of the you know exciting aspects of the project as a whole? So we'll probably refer to it as Ideal from Nature because we that's the project name. Like you, I'm really excited by this project. I think there's a number of really wonderful things. And first and foremost, being able to be involved in a program that actually helps integrate research knowledge into clinical practice. And theoretically, this will help improve clinical outcomes for people. So to be involved in a program that is actually driving towards that, as much as we like publishing and doing research type of endeavours, we want that research to be, in the end, helpful for people. So for me, this program really does tick that box in a big way. But also, I think 
working with people outside of academia. And you yourself were, I think, um, you just really lived that, um, working with people in pathology services, people with different areas of expertise and background, and having to cobble together a, a program that involved a lot of different people, all keenly working towards the same endeavour, all together made it a wonderful project, and it still got a long way to go. Yeah, it sure does. We put the first stepping stone. And I think that's a really important point with a PhD. I think when you start a PhD, you feel like, you know, you're trying for the Nobel Prize or something. But actually, I think somebody said it's like, it's like you're the equivalent of a grain of sand on a beach. You know, that's how much knowledge you're aiming to achieve or to, to add to the, the swell of knowledge that already exists. What you were saying about this project is actually a really good example of research informing practice and like making a change that's very pragmatic. It's probably what appealed to me most. And I think the longer I was involved with the project I started off very much focused on this is empowering for patients it's great that they can make the decision to engage with this and and screen for their own risk of cardiovascular disease but by the end of my PhD I feel more strongly that this service actually alleviates GP workload and it supports them giving the best possible care that they can which it must be so frustrating to be working in general practice and have all of these competing interests all the time so we interviewed some GPs as part of my my PhD work and I was really hit that most of them actually they do prioritize preventive medicine and they want to do that and they see the value in it but actually it's just not feasible in their environment so for me to be able to implement something that reduces GP workload and also increases how likely we are to identify somebody who's at risk and could benefit from treatment is hugely exciting. Absolutely. I mean, you had a very broad experience in your PhD. <laughs> you were doing so many different things and in, in, interfacing with so many different, you know, from new IT programs and applications to people. Would you be able to draw out a particular highlight from the project itself? I think it's hard because I did have such a breath. You know, I did some really difficult quantitative working with numbers papers to analyzing interviews. But I think a key highlight for me is probably seeing the service in practice that very first day because for the first like 18 months of my PhD, I just kind of had to have this blind faith that it was all going to come together and that we were going to get this app working. And the industry partners that we worked with, you know, IT is a very male dominated space and that's across the board but then also to have somebody come in to start a PhD who's kind of leading the development of the project who doesn't know anything about IT I didn't even know how to set up a second screen on my first day of my PhD and it was amazing you know some of these people that I work with like Lee Murphy have been working in the tech space for like nearly 20 years if not longer and they were so generous with their time so I think that very first day when we had our first participants come through and I called him I was like did you get the information in the lab uh, and he had and I think that that was probably the highlight for me because I was like okay everything else is going to be fine because we've we've made this happen <laughs> but your baby works <laughs> yeah I was like it's out there in the world <laughs> what about um things you might do differently. And have you been thinking about this? A bit of time to reflect? Yeah, I think PhD is a very different learning experience to anything else that you'll have encountered before that and probably anything that I might encounter again, but I'm not sure about that because I don't know what's to come. But it's realising all of the things that have to fall into place really early on. So I think I identified 
that you know my project probably would have ticked along and we would have gotten to the start date of data collection with that project at the around the same time even if I had been less focused on the project progression but maybe more prioritized my statistical analysis skills or my writing skills alongside that so I think I've learned some really interesting things about myself and how I work when you have to work so independently you know, I've always been somebody that's kind of um, struggled with academia. So I think that this project was perfect for me because it had such a breadth of experiences that there was no fear of me getting bored, that's for sure. But also I think I had a lot of bad habits associated with the way that I respond to something when I think it's really difficult. I don't consider myself good with numbers. So with stats problem, I'm anxious about it before I even try. You know, I'm like, oh God, no, I can't do that. But I've gone to some really good workshops that the University of Tasmania have delivered. One in particular by Hugh Keynes, which was really good, who's from Slack. I go as well where I'm from in Ireland and it kind of talks about how people as humans like process anxiety or maybe process previous bad experiences and then if you're a PhD student and you're really busy anyway it's really easy to find things to stay busy and be like pseudo productive but actually that's not being productive and that your bread and butter is writing and analyzing data and that you need to realize how to balance those things. What advice would you give now with that hindsight? I think my major advice to a PhD student starting out now would be your supervisor is probably as invested in this project as you and as invested in you as a key part of that project. Your supervisor is not the enemy. They're not there to try and trip you up or point out when you've made a mistake. They're there to help you and to guide you. So the best thing that you can do is to be very upfront about the areas that you need to improve, the types of support that you would benefit from, and just be honest and ask for help more often. An outstanding answer, Neve. What you're saying is listen to your supervisor. <laughs> I'm sure you're happy to hear that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much active on Twitter and I find it very interesting to see what other graduate students are saying. And I find that there's this whole rhetoric around people having bad supervisors. And I'm sure some people do, but that's not my case, as I hope you would know, Jim, because I, I really pride myself on being the type of person that says thank you and fosters good working relationships with people. So I've found that you, Rebecca McWherter and Martin Schultz have been really open door policy, like reach out and just ha have help when you need it because everybody is invested in your development and your project. But also if you look at a PhD, it's a huge resource that's just been given to you. Like if you've gotten a PhD scholarship, that's pretty incredible. And somebody has just been like, here is thousands of dollars as a stipend and also for research resources. And I mean, you don't get that for no reason reason so generally people probably want you to succeed yeah look I, I think you make a number of really good points there and, and the supervisory team is there to try and help and support as much as possible but I think also when it comes to a PhD there are massive challenges that come on your doorstep you could never imagine them when you first set out and it's not a linear path from start to finish like many jobs may be you encounter roadblocks all the way and you're required somehow to work through around um, needing to collaborate and network and get help. And very, it's very hard to do it on your own. So I think what you're describing there about perhaps PhD students that might be not having a good experience with their supervisors or their teams, it may be reflecting the challenges that, and the problems that they've encountered and hopefully working through that successfully together. It often in, involves some really frank, open discussions about what's required. And I do remember some of those frank conversations. I actually remember them quite fondly, though, which is good. <laughs> what are some of the 
challenges for you, the biggest challenges that you've had to overcome, do you think, in your PhD experience? I think the biggest thing I've had to overcome, and I probably won't ever fully overcome it, is just this um, imposter syndrome and this feeling of that you're just not quite adequate enough to actually be there, which is it's quite hard to talk about because you know, you are there. And I'm also, you know, a fairly assertive and confident person. So I feel like people find it quite surprising when I say that. And then I don't like people thinking that I'm looking for like sympathy or whatever. (laughs) So it's quite difficult. But, you know, I have dyslexia and I really struggle um, with writing. I always have all my life. And I really struggle with numbers. I get very intimidated by numbers and graphs very quickly. So I feel like that really intense anxiety very early on when trying to deal with it. And I think those two challenges have been exceptionally difficult and frustrating, particularly because, um, you know, during the second year of my PhD, I was looking at a very uphill battle of I had a lot of writing to catch up on because I put so much time putting it off. But then I was like, well, how the hell am I going to actually get through this? Because I'm not very good at it. And I hate it as well, which isn't true, actually. I used to love writing when I was younger. But essentially, I remember talking to a lot of people about it. And I was saying that it's so frustrating that I can have a conversation with somebody and I can clearly communicate what I'm trying to say. I can convey the message and I can be quite engaging about it. But I just cannot have that clarity when I try and put pen and paper or type it out. And I think you and also Rebecca McWherter really helped me think about that differently. And I think I had so in my head about how to write like a scientist or how to write academically and instead I was like okay I'm just gonna do this as a presentation and record myself or I'm just going to talk at the computer and use dictate or I'm literally just going to write this as if I was talking to my friend or my parents about my work and then I'm going to work off that as a first draft rather than writing that first draft as if that had to go straight to being published in the Lancet or something. So I think that's probably the biggest challenge that I've had to overcome, but it's also taught me a lot about myself and that the biggest determinant I think of success in a PhD, and not to say that I'm hugely successful, but to getting through it, uh, the mantra that I stuck with for my last month was a good PhD is a finished PhD. And that, that was it. That's all I kept saying to myself. You can be terrified of your flaws and that's fine, but it's actually much more liberating to be open about them and then just keep trying new ways of changing it. Because even now, you know, I have I had a checklist of, of uh, writing mistakes that I was making. And before I would send a draft to any of my supervisors, I would go to the checklist. And I'm like, okay, I know that I make this mistake. So I'd look at that one mistake and I would go through every paragraph and say, have I made that mistake again <laughs> for a little <laughs> while? Because I was like, I'm going to be driving them insane if I keep sending these problems. So it's just about come up with new ways that you can become your own editor and it will feel really empowering and then also just try lots of different ways there's no one right way to write an article or to you know analyze some stats and that's probably the hardest part of academia is there's so much gray but actually if you want to succeed you've just got to find the way that makes it work for you and helps you reach the standard that you know you're capable of but maybe don't have the skills yet to do so to me it sounds like you, you faced up and stared down one of the biggest challenges you personally face because, correct me if I'm wrong, but I don't think you've ever told me that you've got dyslexia. You've now mentioned it on national radio for the first time to me. <laughs> Probably. Right? I don't know. I don't tell um, many people. <laughs> okay. Thank you. Look, you learn all the time. But, I mean, scientific writing is so difficult. I don't think it comes natural anyone and it's something that needs to be learned because it's a style and there's no room for fluff and it must make sense and it needs to be concise and it needs to take into consideration all the evidence and then you need to 
say something sensible. You know, there's so many different aspects to it. I had no idea that, that you were facing that additional challenge as I gave you additional challenges around your writing. So maybe I should take this opportunity on this national radio uh, program to apologise for the amount of pressure that I put on you at times to really, come on, come on, Neef, let's get this. We've already, uh, we've already had this um, repeating, I guess, well, shall we call it an error or just a, a writing style that we need to attend to. But you absolutely stepped up and did what needs to be done to not only to produce a very, a, a very successful PhD because you submitted it, because it's actually of excellent quality. So congratulations. Thank you. Yeah, it's really interesting. I don't actually, um, I don't think I tell many people at all <laughs> that I have dyslexia, which I should. But one of those things I'm actively trying to be more open about because I think that we should and also acknowledge that you can be in academia and, you know, you might struggle with numbers or with writing. And that's that's fine. Like Generally, you'll find mm. a way that works for you. But I also think it's ironic to look back at, you know, where I started in school and how I progressed forward and the, that relationship I've had with having dyslexia the whole time. In some schools, I was like, oh, yeah, I totally have it. and I'm fine. I'll, I'll have those extra resources. Thanks. And then in others, I'd be like, nope, don't have it. Not admitting it. <laughs> and it's really interesting, the stigma that comes with that. But I wonder, um, you know, you've supervised a lot of students now. What advice, and I think every PhD experience is different, but what advice do you tend to give students when they're starting out with their PhD? So I think there's a whole number of perspectives to this and it's the reasoning for why someone may come and choose to want to have a conversation with you in the first place about doing a PhD. Understanding what it is that's motivating people to want to do a PhD. I think that's critically important. If they feel like they're getting pushed into it by someone or some, uh, you know, external force, and it's not an intrinsic desire, I think that's critically important to to find out from the outset. I think, generally speaking, the sort of advice that I give is sort of things we've already discussed about how it's a process that's not going to be easy, and there are going to be major challenges, and to Consider that from the outset that, that you're going to be faced with things that are going to be difficult and uncomfortable and challenge you in ways that you haven't really maybe not experienced up to date. So giving them some ideas on what to expect um, in starting out. I think also, um, generally speaking, I give advice that you need to be able to have a good relationship with your supervisory team. You're entering into a relationship, aren't you? For three, three and a half uh, years, you're going to be working closely with some people. You want to have confidence in them and hopefully can get on well with them and um, do the work that's needed together as a team. And so I'd also be giving advice in and around the sort of team that you want to put together and the quality of that supervisory team. Have they got the time? Have they got the, the background um, expertise to give you what you want? Um, to achieve in your PhD studies because everyone wants to achieve something slightly different. There's a whole lot of different things. It's about having a conversation with people and understanding what their thoughts are and whether there is any way that I can help, you know, give them more advice on what to expect. Yeah, I think that's a really 
good point and it very much like it's a relationship that you're entering into for at least three and a half years sometimes it's often longer and I agree with you that it really comes down to just having conversations with people and being open about it and being quite professional too you know you are a student which I think is liberating in one part because towards the middle part of my PhD I leaned on that a lot being like you're a student you have to learn and that's what you're doing right now you're not expected to be perfect but you're at a very professional standard now so you have to be maintaining those professional criteria engaging in a really appropriate way and that's I think a really important thing for people to remember as a PhD is that you're getting yourself ready to go into some sort of a workforce whether or not that's academia or industry and this is your opportunity to develop skills that are relevant to academia and to being an excellent researcher, but also relevant to just being a very dynamic and adaptable person who can work in a really rapidly changing workforce. That's something I've really grabbed hold of um, during my PhD experience. It's been really enriching for me. I wonder, though, what are some of the highs that you kind of see as supervising students? Because it must vary so much from student to student. Are there like consistent highs or does that vary quite a lot depending on who you're supervising at the time? I get a, a great buzz out of just seeing people develop as, as and, and mature as human beings as well as as scientists. So, for example, I think it's sort of a bit like a proud father in a way seeing a student present at a, you know, in a difficult environment, for example, at a conference where they may be under pressure for various reasons, but just seeing them perform in that setting, really step up, um, learn, and I think also, although we don't do enough of it, those social occasions where we get out and maybe we might meet in the pub and have a bit of a chat, that sort of stuff is, is really terrific as well. But it's really just that the whole process, seeing, I mean, take your example, you've, you've faced all of these challenges, you've overcome them, you have completed an outstanding PhD, this is what happens. People grow, develop, they face their challenges, they do exceptionally well. It's all really great to see and, and be part of. So it's much more than just ticking boxes of completion. It's the human factor, I think, that's most enjoyable. Yeah, definitely. So we're actually running a little bit out of time and I have heaps more questions that I would like to ask you. But there's a lot of challenges with supervising and I think most of what we've touched on probably helps that patient, that that. Uh, supervisor and student relationship more it really comes down to clear communication but one thing that I'm sure is going to be on the mind of a lot of people that are listening to this is that academia in particular is an increasingly competitive environment but also so is the industry job market and I certainly struggled throughout my PhD with feeling like I was constantly behind and that I was never going to be competitive because when you just look at your peers everybody's on different tracks but you're trying to compare yourself to probably the person who's already got like five papers and has already gotten funding and you're like oh how am I ever going to catch up so do you have any advice on like how to cope with those feelings or how to put yourself in the best position regardless of what type of project you're doing to be competitive when you finish? Yeah, it's a really important point because in a way in research, you've really just got this big monkey on your shoulder the whole way. It starts with your PhD and it becomes more burdensome as you go. Well, you can make it burdensome or you can learn to live with that monkey and understand that, well, okay, I'm at this stage in my career. These are the things that I can do to be competitive. These are the things I need to do to be viewed upon as someone that um, medical research institute, a university, 
are going to be interested in trying to keep and hold on to. I'm a valuable employee. So just making sure that you stick to those sort of, you, you know what those things are. You, you get schooled in those, those criteria. So just keep tapping away at it. And in the meantime, I think understanding that there is a pathway forward. It doesn't always, we can't really, we don't have crystal balls and we don't know exactly how it's going to pan out. But you can do your best to try and make your way doing high quality work. And that monkey on the shoulder, I think you just need to not create stress, internal stress about that. Um, and just get on and do your job as best as you can. That's the way I've dealt with it. I think that I just try and go, well, okay, I've got this contract for X number of years. I'm going to keep doing as much as I can, good quality work, so that I'm competitive when I come around again at the next level. And, and that has worked so far. So I have faith in, in the system. I know we're going through tough times, but we've all already always going through tough times. And I see good people still finding uh, good jobs and good roles in, in science and universities around the world and in Australia. So I, I'm confident we can still keep doing it. And I just try and pass on that confidence and no matter what, what career level you're at. Yeah, I think that's a really important point that you actually do instill in everybody is that do the work and have faith. And then outside of that, you know, don't let the monkey on your back take over your life. Just do what you can do, what's controllable. And then it should hopefully pan out, have faith. And then if not, we probably all have amazing other options anyway. So um, I think that's definitely something that I've adopted because I don't like to just have blind faith. It's not natural. I'd say it's not natural to a lot of scientists. Um, mm. But that's definitely something I've been like, no, you just have to trust in the quality of your work and keep moving forward and, and know that eventually things will come through. There's a little bit of luck to it, but... Um, eventually not but unfortunately Jim that's we're out of time so I'm gonna have to call it there but thank you to Professor James Sharman my primary supervisor for my PhD I'm Neve Chapman thanks for listening to that's what I call science and tune in and get in touch via social media if you're interested 